Well, good morning. It's good to be able to, to greet you, and as I often say at my age, it's good to greet anybody, anytime, anywhere. So, uh, but it, it is good to be able to be with you and to worship with you and to focus our eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. I have to confess to you today, I'm coming to you with a rather heavy heart. I've been getting a lot of correspondence this week, emails uh, coming from Ukraine, uh, from our sister church, uh, from the Zaporosha Bible College and Seminary. A lot of these uh, folks have uh, been very much a part of our heart, part of our church's heart. Um, we established a relationship with this uh, group of believers in uh, early uh, 1990s, so it's been quite a while. And uh, they, they really covet our prayers for them. They're very concerned, obviously, as to what's happening. They're 50 kilometers from the front where the Russian troops are located. And uh, they're anticipating that, that their city will be one of the early ones that would fall if uh, there is indeed a, a conflict that occurs. And so they, one of the last uh, emails that I got uh, asked if we as a sister church would especially be praying for them. I'm glad that Don mentioned that today. But it is, it is very heavy on my heart. I think of uh, the fact that when, when we first got there, uh, at that particular time, it was interesting that uh, they had just come out of 70 years of communist uh, treatment. And to see the joy that was in their hearts uh, having been released from this. And now they're anticipating that there's a, another possibility that they will be put back. But one of, the, one of the phrases that hit me this week was, we had survived for 70 years, and if God's will is that we do this again, we will survive again. And uh, that's a tremendous perspective. So I, I especially wanted to mention that there are a number of you that have actually been there in Ukraine um, with our sister church and uh, doing with the, the, the clubs and doing summer camps and in the churches, and uh, I know it's uh, much on your heart as well, but please be praying for them. I did mention uh, to them that I would mention it to the church, uh, indicating I was going to be here this week, so will you remember them as well? Well, let's turn our eyes upon Jesus and let's ask him to guide our thinking and our, our lessons today in the word of God. Father, we thank you that there is nothing that is a surprise to God. Sometimes we're surprised by the events that occur in life. And when that happens, Lord, we recognize that you are with us to enable us and to sustain us and to actually minister to us. Lord, you give us strength in our weakness, and we thank you for that. What a wonderful provision. Because it's many times uh, that we're reminded that the things that we do, we do not do because we're able the things that we do are because you are able and you work in people that are available to you to work in. So I'm asking, Lord, that you would, as I've mentioned, be watching over our sister church, enable them to be a, a solid witness in whatever they're going to face. May the Lord give them the grace that they need for these days. And we think of the many refugees that they've already taken care of that have come from the eastern areas of, of their nation that have been put out of there by the, the communist insurgents. We pray, Lord, that you would just uh, give the pastors and the Baptist Union wisdom, the strongest uh, percentage of 
of the Baptist Union are in eastern Ukraine. And so, Lord, we pray for that entire uh, group of believers as they've been a witness over the years. May they continue to be a strong witness. And may that be true of us, too. We wrestle through a lot of things in life, but may we understand that it is in our wrestling that sometimes God teaches us the greatest lessons. And so we ask that you would just guide and direct in our study this morning. May the word of God fall upon fertile soil. We pray that we're not the hard soil. We're not the weedy soil. We're not the soil that is unproductive. But Lord, may the seed of the word of God fall upon our hearts and give an abundant harvest. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. You know, it's uh, pretty interesting to watch children as they grow. And I remember, uh, you know, wrestling with my kids. And then it was with my grandkids. And, you know, they would get in there and, and you know, they were convinced that they were going to win. You know, that was always, a, that was always an amazing thing. Here, here's, you know, a 200-plus uh, person wrestling with them on the floor, and they're convinced you know, I got this. I got this. I'm going to win. And that was their attitude. And so you would wrestle with them on the floor and, and uh, you would do that until all of a sudden you would hear from another room, uh, you know, my wife saying something like this, don't hurt them. Watch the lamp. It's time to take this outside. And some of you are laughing because you know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, as time went on, uh, my daughter was now too proper to wrestle with me when she hit ninth grade. After all, that's not what teenage girls do. And then my son joined the wrestling team. And then I said, it's not proper <laughs> for me to wrestle with you any longer. And then it was, it was interesting, roles sort of changed, and, you know, we had grandchildren, and then I would watch my son, who was now a wrestling coach, and I would see him wrestling with his kids, and it would be me who was saying, now don't hurt them! <laughs> you know, that was the, the phrase. But, you know, isn't it interesting that many times we are like this? We're, uh, we're, we're wrestling, thinking that we can defeat God, you know, we're just like this little kid. You know, we, we think that somehow in, in our vain imaginations that we're going to win. That, you know, if we struggle enough and as we resist enough, that we can defeat him. And we sometimes fall into that delusion. So I, I wonder sometimes if, uh, you know, we feel that, uh, that God lets us wrestle with him for a while as we try our best to defeat him. And then he, as a loving father, reveals his power and he pins us. He says, I win. But it's in the wrestling, I think we learn the lesson. And many times in my uh, Christian experience, it has been me wrestling with God. There's things that I wanted, things that were important, agendas that I thought, this church needs to know this. And I would wrestle with people rather than wrestle with God and let him pin the people. I thought I was in control. It's not true. 
And you know, you're not in control of your circumstances either, and God knows that. At any point, he can say, that's enough, it's over, you're pinned, it's done. And I, I want to share with you this morning a principle that uh, I think is very important for me, is that wrestling with God is futile, but sometimes necessary to discover how weak we really are and how necessary it is to submit to God. Sometimes that's the way we learn lessons. You know, I, I'm the person who learns lessons the hard way. By the way, so are you. Isn't that the way life is many times? We struggle, we strive, we use our wisdom and wits, and ultimately we get to the place where God says, you know what? I'm in charge. Do you know what? I know the end from the beginning because I'm God. I'm God, you're not. I win. And I want you to understand how weak you are. And more than that, I want you to understand how strong I am in weak people. I hope you'll understand that today as we look at this passage of Scripture. You find it in, in the Word of God in the book of Genesis. If you want to turn there, there's uh, sermon notes in your bulletin today if you want to follow along. And as I tell everybody where I go and with sermon notes, they're good to have because then you know when I'm almost done. So they're, they're good to have. But either that or you're going to say, he's really going to have to pick this up to get this done. Let me give you a little bit of background where we come to here in Genesis chapter 31. At this particular point in the history of the people of God, 20 years have passed since Jacob had fled from Beersheba to escape Esau's wrath for stealing his blessing. Remember that? You see, those two brothers had some issues. I bet you there's some really interesting wrestling matches between the two of them. And I bet you Esau always won. But one of the things that I found out that as I was looking at this, it's now 20 years uh, since Jacob has also seen something else. Jacob has seen a ladder that reached to heaven and he had a personal encounter with God at Bethel. And at Bethel, 20 years prior to this, God had made some promises to him. And it was during this time that God made a promise and he said, you know, you're going to come back here. You're going to come back to this land. This is where you belong. And that was a promise that was made at Bethel. Now, during the intervening years, these 20 years, he's traveled some 450 miles and he's going into the area of Haran and it was there where he meets up with Uncle Laban. Uncle, Uncle Laban is a piece of work, let me tell you. And it's a piece of work that this man needed to meet because he was just like him. You see, remember Jacob was a deceiver. Guess what Laban was? He was a deceiver. Now, Jacob is finding out what it's like to be deceived. You remember what happened? He, he worked for seven years to marry Rachel, and he gets Leah instead. Then he has to work another seven years for Rachel. And then he had to work six more years to uh, acquire possessions. He has been working, but he hasn't been achieving and so he does this, and in those six years, he amasses a tremendous amount of wealth. 
he becomes a wealthy man, and he makes the people of that land jealous. Isn't it interesting? The people that are successful many times are looked upon with other, by other people with suspicion and antagonism. And so this is what's happening. And, and it's a time of uncertainty because now God has been directing him to return home. Remember, that's what he had been told 20 years earlier. And now God is working in his life and he's going to go back. But the question is, will he think that he can carry out God's command by relying on upon his own resources? Will he uh, see how weak he really is and begin really trusting in God and not his deceptions? Will he be a changed man going back? Or will he be the same old man going back? You know, it's during this time of uncertainty as he's, you know, now being directed by God to go back, he's forced to engage in a heavenly wrestling match. And, and that's where we see our scripture text to be for us today. Now, we're going to be preaching in shorthand because uh, we're going to be covering a lot of verses. So uh, just uh, juice up your thumb if you're using paper or get ready to flip if you're using a device because we're going to be looking at a lot of verses in this text. I want you to notice, first of all, several things that I've discovered in this text. The first is the discoveries that Jacob made before the wrestling match. You see that in, uh, in chapter 31 and following. And, it, and let me actually go back to verse 30 to verse 43, where it says, Thus the man, Jacob, became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks, female and male servants, and camels and donkeys. Now Jacob heard the words of Laban's son saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has acquired all the wealth. That sounds like words of jealousy. But you see, it's in this particular context, God is unsettling the nest. He's no longer comfortable there, and God has already given him direction he's supposed to go back. And I want you to see that in verse 3, you, you see, it says, And the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your family. So God's revealing his will. Actually, God is, is simply going back to what has been said earlier, back in chapter 28, verse 15, where he says, I'm going to be with you, but I'm going to bring you back. And you remember, that was at Bethel. And it was at that particular time that God had said, I have a plan for you, and my plan is bigger than your plans. Can you trust me? Can you trust that I can do what I'm saying? Can you trust me that I can bring you back to where you belong? See, in verse 15 of chapter 28, it said there, Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. And then down in verse 20 to 21, it says in chapter 28, Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and keep me in the way I am going, and give me my bread to eat and clothing to put on, so that I will come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. God, let's make a deal. <laughs> you bless me and you can be my God. Well, thank you very much. How nice of you to acknowledge me. But I tell you, many times we operate the same way. We operate with this, this notion that we can make a deal with God. And, and you know, if, if we make a good deal, then we're going to keep a deal with him. We're going to acknowledge who he is. 
We're going to acknowledge he's the God, that he's sovereign. Amazing, isn't it? How often we need to learn that. So God reveals his will, and he places a desire in his heart that was made actually six years earlier. Because you see back in chapter 30, it tells us there in verses 25 to 26 that God was working in his life. And we find that uh, it says there, he says, I, I want to go home. He tells Laban that. And he says, Laban says, wait a minute. You know, you're my, you're my golden goose that lays the golden eggs. You know, I, I'm blessed because you're here. I don't want you leaving. And so he says, what can I do to, to keep you? What can I do to, to have you play again in my team? Sounds like football. Whoops. But, you know, here's this, here's, this, here's this language. And so there's this deal that's made. And so for six years, God continues to bless. But now God is blessing Jacob in all of this. And he's acquiring this wealth. And it's causing difficulty as it arises. And Laban's sons are having problems with him, as I said in verse 1 of chapter 31. Laban even starts to have some antagonism. It says... Jacob saw the countenance of Laban, and it indeed was not favorable to him. In other words, Laban is saying, hey, I'm supposed to be blessed because you're here. You're getting blessed. I don't like that. So here's what's going on. And so God is revealing his will, and there's a definite call that's given after those six years. Do you see what it says in the last part of verse 3 in chapter 31? Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and your family, and I will be with you. Here is this definite call. Now the timing is right for Jacob to return. Isn't it amazing that God's timing is always perfect? Our timing is at best a guess. Many times we think, now's the time we ought to do this. And, I, and I'm, you know, using my sanctified imagination, I'm thinking I can see God in heaven saying, really? Really? This is the time? It's not the time I planned. How many people in the Bible didn't like the timing of things? How about Joseph? Think he liked the timing? You know, he has a dream, and my dream is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have people bowing down to me. And so when's it going to happen? God says, oh, by the way, you're going to be put into a pit. You're going to be put into a prison. You're going to be put into Potiphar's house. You're going to be placed in a place where you're going to be forgotten. And then it's the right time. How many times do we feel that way? We're in the pits. Or we think that things ought to be done now and in my way and in my time. But now God says, no, now's the time. Now's the time to move. And so God not only reveals his will, but God promises his presence. He says, I'll be with you. This is the same promise as he said that he made back 20 years ago. Back there at Bethel. And then God prepares the way. Now, how does God prepare the way? Well, he does a number of different things. Uh, and I find them here in our text. In verses 4 through 13, Jacob uh, prepares his wives to leave and to be willing to move. Can you imagine? You're coming to 
these wives that you have and you're saying, hey, we're, we're, gonna, we're just going to take a little trip and we're not coming back. We're leaving that. We're going to my hometown. Of course, you've never been there. You have no idea what it's like. But trust me, you're going to love it. Uh, how many times have uh, maybe a husband or a wife said the same thing? You know, you don't know where I'm going. You don't know what I'm going to do. But trust me. And uh, so he builds the case. He says, you know, look, in verses 4 and 5, he says, you know, he says to his, his wives, he says, you know, your dad's not very happy with me. And then he goes on and says, but, and God has blessed me. Look at, all the, look at all the ways he's blessed me. And, uh, you know, and, and, and not only that, but your dad has deceived me ten times. That is the, co- the, the kettle calling the pot black. The deceiver is saying, I got deceived. Yeah, and did you learn anything? But he did this, and, and now, as he says, and, and that's in verse 7, you changed this t- ten times. But he says, but you know what? God is calling me to leave. Look at verse 11. The angel of God spoke to me in a dream saying, Jacob, and I said, here am I. And he said, lift up your eyes and now and see all the rams which leap on, and the flocks that are streaked. And, and he goes on and he sees the way that the Lord is blessed. And he says, God has been with me. God has protected me. Verse 7. And God has blessed me. Verses 9 through 10. And so he says, and now God is calling me to leave. So it's time to leave. Verse 13, I am the God of Bethel. He reminds him about 20 years before. Where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now arise, get out of this land and return to the land of your, of land of your father. And of course, the wives started saying, oh, wait a minute. I have some reservations. You know, can you send me? some PowerPoints of what this place is going to be like. Can you give me the, the guarantees that we're going to be successful there? Can you, can you, can you? No, isn't it amazing? Look at their response. They were willing to break their family ties. Verses 14 and 15. Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, is there still any portion of inheritance for us in our father's house? In other words, hey, we, you know, we, We've attached our wagon to you. There's, there's really nothing left here. And they submit to Jacob's leadership. Verse 16. Whatever God has said to you, do it. Wow. What a, what a picture of submission there. They, they don't have all the details. But yet, we find out that they're saying, whatever God has said, let's do it. So do you see this? He's making these discoveries. God reveals his will. He promises his presence. He prepares the way. And then he confirms his care. I find in verses 22 to to 30 a rather interesting thing. You know what happens. You know the account. Here we do a little little, uh, thumbnail sketch. It says they sneak out in verse 22. And, uh, and as a matter of fact, they sneak out so effectively that, you know, Laban doesn't even realize it for three days. And then we find out that Laban is, is after them. And he's not a happy man. Because there's, there's his family going. There are his, you know, what he would regard as really his possessions because they were from his herds. And, uh, but he says, you know, God intervened. 
Laban was warned in verse 24. But God came to Laban and in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful what you speak to Jacob, neither good nor bad. In other words, back off. You know, he's mine. I have promises I've made to him. I have plans for him. I know what I'm doing. He's carrying out my will. You know, be careful what you say to him. And so God confirms his care to him. And then it's interesting that God makes his presence known. Look at chapter 32, verses 1 and 2. This is after we have this encounter with Rachel where there's the theft of her, the, the gods of, of her father. It, we see it in verses 30 and following. But now God makes his presence known. In verse 1 it says of chapter 32, So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And Jacob saw them, and he said, This is God's camp. And he called the name of that place, literally, it, it's, it, you would translate it this, double camp. In other words, he says, it's not only me that's here, but God's here. Here he is on the trip, on the way back, and he realizes that God is with him. You see, Jacob made a, a number of discoveries just prior to wrestling match with God. And these discoveries were so timely at the point in his life that he's about to embark on a difficult task and return to face Esau. He needed to know these things before he faced Esau. And he does. He makes these discoveries. So as he's faced with so many unknowns that Esau wanted to kill him, that Esau was uh, you know, possibly going to take everything he had worked for, that his family was in jeopardy. In the face of all of this, he's given great encouragements in his life. The question now is, would he trust God? It's one thing to make discoveries about God. It's another thing to embrace them and allow them to impact your life. You know, we, we've made discoveries about God too. And I trust you have. You've made these discoveries from the Word of God, and I trust that you've gotten into those discoveries, and they have encouraged your life, and it's helped you in your life's journey. But the question is, you know the discoveries. The question is, do the discoveries make any difference in your life? Are they challenging you to trust God in spite of how you feel or what you face? I find, uh, you know, right now, I've had people talking to me in other churches where I've ministered, and they're concerned about these are the last days. Oh, this is, these are terrible times. Oh, look at China. Look at Russia. And I'm saying, and, and, and look at our president. You know, they go on and on and on, depending upon whether they're Republican or Democrat church. Anyway, you understand what I'm saying. You know, they go on and on and on. And I'm saying, you know, God already told you about this. God said, in the last days, evil men will wax worse and worse. Is this a surprise? But God also said, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. So what are you going to trust? Are you going to trust your fears and your feelings? Or are you going to operate by faith in a God who's made promises and who has made con commitments? What have you discovered about God? And how are those discoveries translated into your life? There's a second thing I notice in this uh, passage of Scripture. I see the doubts that Jacob manifested before his wrestling match. Oh, wait a minute. You know, isn't this mind-boggling? 
He's on this journey. He's, he's willing to go. He's, he's on the way. And he's, he's there, and, and he's, he does the exact same thing that Bob Reed does. Starts something and then says, oh, wait a minute. Uh, is this smart? Should I be doing this? Isn't there another way to handle this? You know, what should I do? How can I get myself out of this mess? Ever done that? You know, you make the discoveries, and then you respond to the discoveries with doubts. That's what he does. Look at the doubts. It's seen in his emotional state. I see that in, in those verses. He's starting to, it says there, so he's, 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 he's emotionally a mess. I, I, let, me, let me read the text there. It's, it's very interesting. It says, he says, um, Jacob sent messengers, verse 3, before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Sarah, in the, county of, in the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my lord Esau, thus saying, Your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and have stayed there now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male, female servants, and I have sent to tell my lord that I may find favor in your sight. He says, you know, I better make peace with Esau. You know, after all, this isn't safe. By the way, let me ask you a question. When is life safe? Life is safe when it's in God's hands, period. Life is not safe when you put it in your hands and then try to manipulate everything else that's going on around you. You know, you don't like something. You don't like what, how our world is acting. And all of a sudden, we try to manipulate the world in which we live. That's not the way you live by faith. You don't live by manipulation. You live by trusting in God. Trusting in the one who knows the end from the beginning because he's God. And so he assumes the worst. Did you see that in verse 6? It says, then the messengers returned to Jacob and said, hey, uh, I just wanted to report this. We came to your brother Esau, and he is also coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. Oh, my. Uh, it's not like, welcome home. All of a sudden, what he does is he makes an assumption. He assumes the worst. 400 men are coming. And he jumps to the conclusion, this isn't a welcoming party. This is a war party. And as he jumps to that conclusion, the issue that he's focusing upon is this. He's thinking about what he faced, not who was facing this host with him. I'm facing 400 men. Yeah. Yeah. But you also are facing those 400 men with a God who made the promise, I'm with you. So what do you focus upon? The 400 men or the God who is with us? Or the promises that he's made? Or the way he's prepared you? The way he's confirmed his care for you? And the way he's made his presence known? And so as he assumes the worst, anxiety rules. It says in verse 7, so Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Interesting. There's two different Hebrew words, and it's not that he's being redundant. 
The first Hebrew word is yare, which means an emotional or fear of anticipation of evil. So he's anticipating evil. And the second word there, distressed, is the word Sarah, which is the word that comes from a narrowing or confining. In other words, being pressed, feeling like you're squeezed, feeling like you're, you're surrounded, that you are overwhelmed. So this is what's going on. This is the anxiety. That's what happens when he assumes the worst and when he does not rely upon the truth that God has already revealed to him. And the doubts are not only seen in his emotional state, but the doubts are seen also in his mental maneuvering. So what does he do? Ah, now I gotta, I gotta have a plan. How about letting God have the plan? No, I, I wanna go by my plan. So what is his plan? You see it in verses, the last part of verse 7 and following, it says, And so he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. He says, I'm going to cut my losses. You know, let's divide up the troops. Let's make, if I, if I lose one, I, I still have the other. You see, what he's doing is he's going back to his old M.O., He's going back to being this, this deceiver, this controller, this one who's maneuvering life, who thinks that he controls life, and he doesn't. But God does. And so he's planning for the worst, and he divides his possessions into these two groups. And then he prayed for the best. I think this is interesting. Isn't that what I do? Yes. You know, I, I'm thinking, well, I got to do this, and I got to do this. Oh, I ought to pray about this. Isn't that what we do? And so he does. The prayer is very interesting. Uh, in verse 9, you see the prayer. It says, And Jacob said, O God, my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your family, and I will deal well with you. I'm not worthy, at least, of all the mercies and all of the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over the Jordan with my staff, and now I have two companies. Deliver me, I pray. From the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother and my children. Let me tell you something. How many times do we say, oh yeah, we ought to pray about this? We're not really praying. We're formalizing. We're going from the formalities. You know, I, I, I ought to pray. Oh, I ought to remind God about some of the things he said. God didn't forget God didn't forget that he said, I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to bring you back. That's my promise. But you see what he does next? So he planned for the worst, he prayed for the best, and then he presumed he needed to protect himself. Really? What did you just pray about? You just reminded God of his promises. That's all you needed to do. Hey, I'm trusting your promises. I'm standing on the promises of Christ my Lord. Oh, we can sing those hymns greatly. But do we stand on them? Or do we stand on them long enough to run and find our own plans and run our own life? And so he presumes he needs to be protected. So he relies upon reasoning to appease his brother. And what does he do? How about if we send some gifts? <laughs> How about if we buy him off? And so the gift is pretty substantial. You know, 580 animal gift. You know, he's really laying it on. Hey, 400 men are coming, and the animals are going. Let's see if this will hold Esau off. 
So even though Jacob had, son, had made some discoveries about God, he still had some serious doubts about his life. And in the face of those doubts, Jacob, the deceiver and the manipulator, turns back to his own old M.O. And his method of operation, he faces the fear that is in his life. How many times have you and I turned to human reasoning rather than let God work? Do we trust God? Or do we trust our manipulations of people, events, or circumstances? This brings us to the wrestling match. You say, well, I thought we were going to get to that. Yeah, well, we are, and here we are. The wrestling match starts. You see, it develops in a very interesting way, and I want you to see some of the things that God used to use this wrestling match to develop this man, Jacob, whose name is Deceiver. Nice name. How would you like that for a nickname? Hey, Deceiver. But here he is. I want you to notice several things. First of all, I want you to notice how this development took place. He wrestled alone. Verse 24, and he arose that night and he took his two, his two wives and his two female servants and his 11 sons and he crossed them over to the, the ford. And he took them and he sent them over the brook and sent them over what he, all he had. And Jacob was left alone. I find that very interesting that sometimes what we need the most in our life is alone time with God. Want to wrestle with God? That's not a group activity. If you're wrestling with God, it's one-on-one. -on -one. You need to come face-to-face -face with who's in charge. You need to come face-to-face -face in what he wants to say to you. You need to come face-to-face -face and let him crush you. Because that's when we start to learn that we're not in control, that he is. And I find it very interesting that as we've been seeing these changes occur, just don't don't blow past these processes. We see, uh, if I can get this to move. No, I can't. So we won't. But the processes keep going, and he's, he's wrestling now alone. And sometimes that's where we need to be. And then I want you to notice, too, he wrestled an opponent he could not defeat. Last part of verse 24 is interesting. It says, a man wrestled with him. Until the break of day. A man wrestled with him. By the way, you notice in the English text, it capitalizes man. And uh, it says that, still isn't working, guys. There we go. One more. There we go. We find out that as he's there, the, the, he, the man he's wrestling with is defined. As a matter of fact, he's defined in several ways. In the book of Hosea, chapter 12, verse 4, it calls him an angel, uh, suggesting a theophany, which is a, 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 an appearance of God before the incarnation in Jesus Christ. And so there's this angel of the Lord, and we find out that he understands that it's not just any sim simple man, because down in verse 30 of this same chapter, it says, so Jacob called the name the place the face of God. In other words, he says, I'm wrestling God. So he wrestled an opponent he couldn't defeat. And yet, that's what we do all the time when we're refusing to listen to what God is saying. We can't defeat him. 
but we wrestle with him. And notice as well, he wrestled for a prolonged time. It says until daybreak. You know, we must be willing to take time as God develops our spiritual impatience that can destroy our development. Many times we want answers and we want things to change and we want it done quickly. That's the American way. You know, I don't want to wait for God to do something. I want what I want and I want it now. And so here we go. And I like what one person said. He says, of course, the divine stranger could have crushed Jacob instantly. But that is not the way that God deals with men. He struggles and wrestles with them that they may yield to him. But he does not crush them with his great strength. Listen, God can make you do whatever he wants you to do. But he would rather wrestle with you so that you are willing to conform to the image of Christ. So that you can be a person who follows his will. I notice something else here in this development. He wrestled until he was weak. Look at the last part of verse 25. It says, or actually all of verse 25, it says, Now when he saw that he did not prevail, that is, Jacob hadn't prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. In other words, it's time to be made weak. Because it's in our weakness sometimes, that's when we realize that we can't operate without the strength of God. The Apostle Paul learned that, didn't he? Do you remember what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10? He says, his strength is made perfect in weakness. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Why are you strong when you're weak? Because all of a sudden you realize that your strength needs to come not from yourself, but from the one who is your sovereign. And so here he is, he's wrestling. And uh, I, I like what another guy said. He said, Jacob's persistent self-confidence also shriveled in this wrestling match. His carnal weapons were lame and useless. They failed him in his contest with God. What he had surmised for the past 20 years now dawned on him. He was in the hands of the one against whom it is used to struggle. In the wrestling matches of life, we need to get to the point, I need to get to the point where I'm saying, this is useless. This is senseless. I need to be relying upon what God has said and what his word is and in his word alone. Not relying upon ourselves. The question I asked myself as I was studying this is, what would God need to touch in my life to develop me? You know, my joint? Well, it's already been replaced. You know? You know, that's not what he needs to touch. But what happens if he touches my money? You know, all of a sudden, I just don't have a job. Or what happens if uh, he touches my friends? Or if he touches my position? Or if he touches wisdom? Is that what he needs to touch? So that I realize that my strength is really not in myself, but it's in the Lord. And then... The last thing I notice here is that he wrestled till he was changed. Two changes come to mind there. He was given a new name. It tells us in verse 28. What's his new name? Your name shall no longer be called Jacob. Oh, that's good. Finally get rid of that name. The deceitful supplanter. <laughs> I get rid of that one. And what's the new name? It says, now it is God who fights for him. 
It is God who fights through him. Because you see, he's given the name Israel. You know what Israel means? It means God fights. See, he's been fighting his whole life. He thinks it's all about him and all about his strength, all about his wisdom, all about the things that he can control. And all of a sudden, now he gets to the place he says, oh, no, 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 no. It's God fights. God fights through people who yield to him. That's who you are now. You're Israel. So he's given a new name and he's given a new blessing. Verse 29 says, and he blessed him there. This man is a blessed man. He's been given a lot of blessings and now he's given a new blessing, another blessing. Jacob was in a dark time of his life, alone, without resources. He'd been relying upon and he wrestled with God. And it was during this time that he was developed into the man that God wanted him to be. How many times have you and I found ourselves in dark times? I found myself in dark times a lot. Not just as a pastor, but I found this as a dad. I found this as a husband. I found this as a person in culture and society. I, I regard the time I'm in right now and culture as dark times. But it's in those dark times. I need to realize that my reliance is not upon my strength. It's upon my sovereign God who gives me strength to endure the things that he has placed in my life. How important that is. And with, this is stopped again. There we go. Maybe it's broken family relationships. Maybe that's the, the thing you're struggling with. Or maybe it's a health crisis. Maybe that's what you're struggling with. Or strained friendships or job uncertainties or aging issues or making ends meet or depression-induced anxiety. I don't know what you're struggling with. But I do know this, that it's in those times that you can make the discovery that Jacob needed to learn, what Israel needed to learn. He needed to learn that his strength was made perfect in weakness. So that brings us to this conclusion. The conclusion is this. I think we've got a dead battery there. Wrestling with God is futile, but sometimes necessary to discover how weak we really are and how necessary it is to submit to God. So Jacob was left alone. Do you ever feel like you're left alone? Do you feel like you're in a wrestling match in life? And, and what are you wrestling with? Are you wrestling with God about these things that we had there listed? I, I, I have, do we have the attitude that Jacob cried out in his weakness? I will not let you go till you bless me. You know, that's exactly what God wants to hear. God doesn't want to hear your plans. He doesn't want to hear your proposals. He doesn't want to hear about how you're going to manipulate the situation in which you find yourself. What he simply wants us to hear from us is these words. I'm not going to let you go, God. Until you bless me. Because you see, it's in seeking his blessing that you're understanding where your strength really lies. Our strength is in the name of the Lord. Do you realize that? Do you rely upon that? And do you live in light of those realities? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Your word is truth. 
The Word teaches us that too many times we're relying upon our wisdom. We're, we're trying to manipulate situations so that the things that we think are important in this world we can accomplish by our own wits. Help us to realize that our wits are nothing compared to the wisdom of God. God wants to work in our lives so that we can become the men and women of God he wants us to be. May we wrestle with God until we understand how weak we really are. And in our weakness, may we see your strength as we yield to you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.